Chapter Two of the Girls of Gardenville by Carol Watson Rankin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: Sustaining a Borrowed Reputation. One. It was Caroline's cousin, Rhea Margrave, who proudly carried the glistening lemon drops to the Sweet Sixteen's sale, and who afterwards took to herself all the credit for having made them. Rhea, no doubt, believed that the credit belonged to her, for she, and no one else, had offered to make the sticky, troublesome things. It was really Anne, however, who had spent a long forenoon in the hot kitchen, waiting for the slow-boiling syrup to reach a lemon-dropping stage, and had afterwards been obliged to forego the pleasures of the sale because of a splitting headache. Serene Mrs. Margrave awoke one day to a realizing sense that her daughter, Rhea, had become a problem. Perhaps not an unsolvable one, but still one that presented difficulties to a little mother, unaccustomed to problems. Lively, attractive Rhea was sufficiently energetic along certain lines, but her triumphs were usually the result of accident, rather than the fitting reward of labor faithfully performed. Her older sister, Anne, was different. Anne conscientiously brushed her smooth, taffy-colored hair for twenty minutes by the clock each night and morning. Yet no one thought of bestowing commendations upon the well-kept head. Rhea, on the other hand, gave her dark, shaggy locks what matter-of-fact Aunt Julia called a lick and a promise at rising time, and daily reaped a harvest of compliments from admiring classmates. There was no harm in this, perhaps, but there was another phase to the situation— not content with what credit rightfully accrued to her, Rhea was gradually appropriating all that belonged to Anne. Painstaking Anne stayed up half the night to study the lessons. Rhea recited them. Somebody had to, Rhea said truthfully, and diffident Anne was afflicted with a faltering tongue. Industrious Anne patiently embroidered elaborate doilies and centerpieces for Rhea to give away with a flourish at Christmas time. Anne injured her eyes over drawn work, and Rhea gave away drawn work napkins as wedding gifts. To be sure, the cards attached always read in Rhea's big vertical hand, with love from Anne and Rhea. But somehow, the notes of thanks were always addressed to Rhea, whose impatient fingers were absolutely guiltless of embroidery, and the gratitude, too, always fell to her lot. It was Rhea, too, whom the girls invited to make a cake for the junior party. It was Anne, of course, who rose at five to make the cake. Nevertheless, Rhea, from that time forth, proudly bore the reputation for making the best walnut cake that the class had ever eaten. It was so with everything else. Seventeen-year-old Anne did the work, and Rhea, a year younger, and ever so many years lazier, calmly reaped the reward. No one but wise Aunt Julia, who lived next door, noticed the wistful look that sometimes crept into Anne's patient gray eyes when some enthusiastic visitor praised Rhea's supposed achievements. She spoke of it to Rhea's mother. After that, Mrs. Margrave would frequently remonstrate with her apparently conscienceless younger daughter, who, however, shed all remonstrances just as the gaily-plumaged mandarin ducks in Bronx Park shed water. "'But, Rhea,' Mrs. Margrave would say, "'do you think it's quite fair or quite honest "'to take all the credit and all the praise "'when it really belongs to poor Anne? "'There was that beautiful burnt wood plaque "'that Anne made for Mrs. Rogers. 
I think you might have mentioned when she thanked you so effusively for it that Anne made it. And those hem-stitched ruffles that Anne... Oh, Anne doesn't mind, Rhea would respond lightly. I'm tired of explaining that Anne is the clever one. Nobody ever believes it anyway. But Anne feels hurt. Oh, I'm sure she doesn't. She really hates to be noticed. When people thank Anne, she just turns pink and looks silly and wishes that the floor would open and let her through. It's much more comfortable all around for me to do the accepting. I do it so much more gracefully. It really seemed, the day that Catherine Denham stopped in to thank Anne for the birthday gift that she had watched Anne's patient fingers construct, that Rhea was right. "'Thank you ever so much,' said big, impressive Catherine, bustling in and planting an unexpected kiss on Anne's pale cheek. "'That dear little needlebook was perfectly lovely.' "'I, yes, I mean, no,' faltered overwhelmed Anne, turning a lively pink. "'It—' It, Rhea, it was from Rhea, too. So glad you like it, murmured self-possessed Rhea, presenting a calm cheek to be kissed. But I know Anne made it, said Catherine, kissing the offered cheek, because I saw her taking all those tiny little stitches the other day at your cousin Caroline's. How sweet of you, Anne. I'm, I'm not at all, stammered Anne, fairly squirming in Catherine's second embrace. I, I wish you wouldn't say anything about it. As Rhea had said, Anne did not accept thanks gracefully. If almost all the rest of the world failed seemingly to appreciate Anne's industry, Aunt Julia at least did not. Easy-going Mrs. Margrave had been wondering mildly for two years how to adjust matters so that Anne's really excellent qualities should win the recognition they deserved. When opportunity offered, vigorous Aunt Julia settled the matter in two minutes. This forceful woman arrived at the Margraves one morning, just as Rhea, flushed with vicarious triumph, was graciously receiving, over the telephone, congratulations for the splendid salad that Anne had laboriously made for the school board luncheon. Anne, shy and silent as usual, appeared more than usually limp and dejected. Rhea was twittering glibly. So glad you liked it. Oh, not at all hard to make. Yes, walnuts, chopped very fine. Oh, mayonnaise. And it was mayonnaise, wasn't it? Yes, mayonnaise dressing. Oh, thank you. It's very good of you to say so. Thank you. Anne doesn't seem at all well this morning, said Mrs. Margrave, greeting Aunt Julia. Humph, returned Aunt Julia, making for the largest chair the room contained. It's not surprising. "'Yes,' pursued Mrs. Margrave, who indeed looked worried. "'Anne seems to have lost all her starch. "'Do sit up, Anne, and put your shoulders back. "'I've been wondering lately if I hadn't better take her out of school for a month. "'Perhaps a little change would do her good.' "'A great big change is what she needs,' said Aunt Julia, "'drawing a letter from a large leather bag that always dangled from her wide belt.' Aunt Julia's belongings were invariably substantial and of heroic size. And she's going to get it. She's going to Bermuda with me tomorrow night. Bermuda? gasped Mrs. Margrave and Rhea. Bermuda? echoed Anne. Yes, Bermuda. But why Bermuda? queried Rhea, with eager interest. Nobody in Gardenville ever went there. Well, I'm going, returned Aunt Julia. 
This letter's from your Uncle William's partner, Mr. Bryce, who's got to stay with the United States end of the business. William's been ordered to Bermuda to look after things there for the firm for the next six months, and I'm going with him. So is Anne. Oh, began Rhea eagerly, Anne wouldn't care half. I said Anne, snapped Aunt Julia, who was as brusque as she was warm-hearted. When I want to take you to Bermuda, I'll say so. Rhea looked so abashed at this plain statement that Aunt Julia apologized. There, there, she said, laying a large kindly hand over Rhea's slender one. I didn't mean to be so short. I guess I'm edgewise this morning with so much to do. Have Anne ready, Mary, for the six o'clock train tomorrow night. Expenses? Bless you. This is my treat. 2. After two exceedingly busy, bustling days, during which seemingly everything in the house was hastily packed into Anne's trunk, and as hurriedly pulled out again, the girl was finally started for Bermuda, and the Margraves settled down to life without Anne. Troubles began almost immediately for Rhea, who found herself face to face with the problem of living up to a reputation that did not belong to her, but that had nevertheless become dear. Rhea loved her pedestal, but suddenly she found herself tottering. It was not dishonesty, but pride. The kind of pride that is said to go before destruction, that moved Rhea to conceal the fact that she could not do the things that all the town appeared suddenly to demand of her. "'Oh, Rhea,' called one of her classmates the day after Anne's hurried departure, "'Mother wants you to make a big plateful of your delicious fudge for the candy table at the fair tomorrow night.' She tasted some of that you gave Mabel Mercer last week, and she said it was the best fudge. Anne really makes better fudge than I do, said Rhea, loath to confess that she herself had never made fudge of any quality. Oh, I'm sure, protested the other girl, that nobody's fudge could be nicer than yours. You do excel so in everything you do. I think you're perfectly wonderful. Well, promised flattered Rhea, I'll do the best I can. Rhea's best was not very good. The first batch went up in smoke. The second boiled over, very much to the detriment of the gas stove. The third crumbled to bits in the pan. I'll make a decent batch of fudge if it takes all night, declared Rhea, vigorously scouring the scorched fudge kettle with a rasping wire dishcloth. I will, I will, I will. And she did. Next it was an embroidered doily for Margaret Sutton's shower. It must be violets, said Mabel. It's to match the luncheon set the rest of the Sweet Sixteen are making. You do make such adorable violets. Why, began Rhea truthfully, I nev... Suddenly, however, she remembered the violet centerpiece she had supposedly embroidered for Mabel's mother, and deftly amended her reply. I never did like to do violets, she said, but I'll try. She did try. Indeed, she had to try and try hard, for violets were not at all in her line. When the first unflower-like blossom was completed, she asked her cousin, Tom Flanders, who could be trusted for an unbiased opinion, if anybody could, what the purple blotch looked like to him. Well, said honest Tom, eyeing the attempted violet critically, I should call that a very fair imitation of an overfed pollywog, sort of an apoplectic pollywog. It comes out, said Rhea, snipping the stitches decisively. 
I'll make violety violets if I have to make a bushel of the horrid things before I get one perfect. You'll do, said Tom admiringly. I'm not sure, admitted Rhea ruefully. Why not? Can you keep a perfectly horrid secret, Tom? I might try. Well, it's this way, confided Rhea. I'm dreading the winter worse than Caroline dreads counting money. Why? queried interested Tom. You don't look like a person consumed by dread. Well, I am, declared Rhea. Don't you dare tell anybody, but I'm sitting up nights to sustain a reputation that doesn't belong to me. I'm beginning to wish I'd never acquired it, or purloined it, or borrowed it, or stolen it. I don't know just how I did get it, but I seem to have it. Worst of all, while it's bothering me most to death, I kind of want to keep it. Whose is it? Anne's. You don't mean it. Yes, I do. Not for nut cake. Yes, for nut cake, geometry, fudge, embroidery, lemon drops, biology, hem stitching, pyrography, basket weaving, beadwork, cooking, plain sewing, everything that means hard work. Phew! exclaimed astonished Tom. Yes, it is phew, assented Rhea. I hadn't an idea that Anne was so frightfully clever. I supposed that I was the smart one. Anne's a worker, all right, said Tom, but she doesn't show off worth a cent. And I'm an idler, said Rhea, but I show off like ninety dollars. A week later, Rhea rapped on the window as Tom was passing the house. Mercy, Tom, she cried from the doorway a moment later. Come here quick. What's up? queried Tom, bounding up the steps. Oh, I'm in a frightful pickle. We're to have a hit-or-miss review of all the last half of Caesar. All the Latin I know went to Bermuda with Anne, and you're my only hope. Do come in and help me cram while I stone raisins for the pie I'm to make for the school board luncheon. It seems that I have a reputation for making mince pies. Oh, why was I so grasping? Oh, what a tangled web we weave! quoted Tom, following his distressed young cousin to the library. Why don't you just confess and be done with it? Why not let Anne have her old thunder? I won't confess. I want the thunder myself. Without it, what would I be? Oh, there'd be a little left, I guess. But what are you going to do? Anne won't be home for weeks. I'm going, said Rhea, with grim determination, to deserve every scrap of all the reputation I've acquired by proxy. But Anne... Bother Anne, said Rhea crossly. Do begin that vile Caesar. As Rhea had prophesied, the winter proved trying. Naturally careless and always too hasty, the impulsive girl found it a stupendous undertaking to do tasks that required prolonged, painstaking effort. Anne was essentially patient and persevering. Rhea was not. But thanks to her indomitable energy, by March the reputation that Anne had left behind her was honestly Rhea's. She had made her title clear by sheer grit. But there were times when the task seemed almost too great. At such times she found it a great relief to confide in Tom. Tom, she would say, half pathetically, half jokingly, if I hadn't borrowed Anne's reputation, I might have lived a happy, comfortable life as just one girl. As it is, 
I have to be myself and Anne, too. And I don't like it one single bit. Anne was coming in April, and everybody was doing things for her. The entire family wore an air of pleased expectancy. Mrs. Margrave was making dainty underclothing. Cousin Tom was carving a bookshelf for Anne's room, and busy Mr. Margrave had sent home a comfortable rocking chair with For Anne printed in big letters on a dangling card. Somehow everybody seemed glad that Anne was coming. Rhea, grown taller and a trifle thinner, was plainly pondering some momentous question. She was absent-minded at meals and sat for long moments at other times, gazing with unseeing eyes into the fire. It was not like Rhea to be thoughtful, yet for three weeks Rhea had certainly been thinking. This worried Mrs. Margrave. It was so unusual for Rhea to think. "'Rhea, what are you going to do for Anne?' she asked one day. "'I... I don't just know,' returned Rhea, suddenly flushing. "'Have you made her anything?' "'I'm making it,' said Rhea. "'Don't ask about it, please. I'll tell you all about it when it's finished.' It's, it's pretty hard work. To Mrs. Margrave's consternation, Rhea's dark eyes filled suddenly with tears. The girl was not given ordinarily to tears. You're not working at night, I hope, asked Mrs. Margrave anxiously. No, only daytimes, said Rhea, unexpectedly smiling through her tears. It's really all done, but the finishing touches. I'm making a first-class job of it. For twenty-four hours Mrs. Margrave wondered what Rhea could possibly be making for Anne. For days the girl had not sewed a stitch, nor had she purchased materials of any kind, unless one could call postage stamps materials. Certainly Rhea had purchased an unusual number of stamps. Still, the family connection was large, and Rhea, perhaps, was making a wholesome business of writing neglected letters. Possibly she was even planning to have Anne find a letter at each stopping place on the way home. When Rhea came in the next day after school, her nice brown eyes were shining and she was humming a gay little tune. She had not been as cheerful in weeks, and the change was noticeable. Mrs. Margrave knew, by some motherly instinct, that the girl was ready to answer questions. "'Well, Rhea,' she asked pleasantly, "'what have you made for Anne?' "'A reputation,' said Rhea. "'Or, at any rate, I've given her the one that rightfully belongs to her.' Anne is a dividend-paying stock today. How did you do it? Fessed up, said Rhea. By word of mouth to everybody in Gardnerville, and by tremendous letters to all the folks out of town. But why? asked Mrs. Margrave. Because I hated to be a horrid little humbug, and because I want Anne to see how it feels to be puffed up with praise and pride, that is, when it's merited. But what have you done? What have you said? Oh, said Rhea happily, I've repudiated any share in any of the beautiful things that Anne has ever made or done. I told everybody that it was Anne, Anne, Anne that was clever, and that I was stupid and lazy, that until last December I was merely a fraud, a snare, a gold brick, and a delusion, that I was a little trashy Christmas tree ornament in the shop window, and that Anne was the diamond in the fireproof safe inside. But Rhea... Yes, I told them that I was the frosting and that Anne was the cake, that I was just a little parlor fixed up for company, and that Anne was the whole comfortable house, that I was the froth on top of the wash water, but that Anne was the suds. Rhea, gasped Mrs. Margrave. Well, not just like that, of course, laughed Rhea, but words to that effect. 
And now, Mumsey, I'm standing on my own feet, and Anne's all solid on hers. And, oh, I do feel so relieved and so astonishingly honest. How did everybody take it? asked Mrs. Margrave, naturally curious. Well, to tell the humiliating truth, confessed Rhea, somewhat sheepishly, most of them said they'd always suspected it. End of chapter 2